Welcome to the Reinventing Education podcast. This is a podcast for anybody interested in the reinvention of education. My name is Rob McLeod, and as always, joined by the inimitable Brendan O'Leary. How are you, Brendan? Good. Fine. Don't try to minute me. I've, I've, I know that word to see it and to hear it, but I don't know if I pronounce that word right. Inimitable. Inimitable. In- That's what I was going for. Imitable. You cannot yeah. imitate me. What's that all about, Rob? You're a unique, distinct, oh, this beautiful, sounds like I'm angelic. Fishing for praise. Nope. You're fishing for praise. Cut. Uh, what do you mean by that? Hello. This is you. This is you being the beautiful, delicate human being you are. <laughs> no one else would start a podcast this way. Nobody. I won't even because this is all getting edited out. <laughs> How are you doing, Mike? Pretty well overall. I'm just, uh, I'm wrapping up three weeks away from school. Two weeks of those were my Belgian paternity leave. And one week of that was uh, a school holiday. So just about to get back into the, into the game, as they say. How now, a Belgian you? paternity leave. Is mm-hmm. that similar to a Belgian waffle? In almost every imaginable category, they are different. The only thing that they, they share in common is being of Belgian, being associated to Belgium. And the I word thought you were going to say name. being smothered in syrup. Both are a warm, glowing, beautiful thing. I like it. I like the cut of your jib. What's that all about? How am I doing? I'm fine. I also had a week off school because it's October times and uh, hung around with the kids, my own kids. Not strangers, children. Went to the Pokemon Cafe, which was cool. Uh, went to Universal Studios Japan, also cool. Went to the dentist, which was not uncool. In they Universal Studios Japan? Yeah, it was, um, they strap you in, shoot you up a tube, and uh, do your roots, do your root canals while you're there. Hell of a ride, Mac, hell of a ride. School related, I what I did is I went into our accreditation um, document and started pulling it apart to look at how it works. Got some interesting ideas about how one may accredit the quality of a school, because I'm now going to be in charge of like coordinating that, and I'm somewhat stressed about that idea. Because like this is the accreditation of... for an IB, International Baccalaureate School. Actually, this is the other one. This is the the uh, the American WASC, the California, the, the West Coast um, Experimental Pop Art Band Accreditation Society. So we're accredited by a Californian organization also. And so outside of our IB cycles, we have to do this accreditation. And this is a, uh, asks a lot of good questions about how the schools run and how, but how we can evidence our progress and uh, critique our own progress which is is good it's an interesting way to look at it but uh, kind of stressful first when someone gives you uh, here is 150 questions that you have to provide evidence for you have four years to do it so don't worry so there's that school related and so that's you your school trying to balance both being accredited as an ib school and this west coast rappers association absolutely accreditation and they're both kind of valuable in their own way we can get into a little bit when we start to talk about how one assesses the quality of a school we haven't got into that yet no maybe this is the perfect launching point to talk about reinventing education 
in a nutshell. In a nutshell. Okay, so it's your turn. In this segment of our show, Rob McLeod attempts to tell you, the listeners, what we're all about in a few seconds or less. So I'll give you the heading and you say what it's all about. And just before you get to the headings, Brennan, for anybody who's new to us, in a nutshell, this entire podcast is about Brennan and I creating a map or a few lenses that can be used when talking about change in education. There's a lot of great stuff going on out there, but we're not necessarily all on the same map. And Bren and I were kind of attempting to contribute to the development of education by presenting a framework to look at education, look at ourselves, look at our schools, our communities, curriculums, practices, all these sorts of things, and have a coherent lens to speak to each other through. Yeah, and I guess we want healthy, positive schools, regardless of the context that you're in. So one of the first things we talk about are the three aims of school, which are... So the three aims of school or the three aims of an education are to prepare you for the workforce, so occupational preparation, and that occupational preparation often involves getting you ready for the next stage of school. Second one is the cultivation of citizenship, so to have you be a member of the society and uphold the society's values. And the third is self-development, so the developing of you as a person. So occupational preparation, cultivation of citizenship, and self-development are the three aims of school or the three aims of an education. And so each school will balance these aims, but underpinning everything within the school is a core value. And we are saying there are four of these currently in operation in schools, which are security, opportunity, inclusion, and integration. So these four values are kind of like the software that runs what happens in a school. If you are familiar with the work of Frederick Leloux and reinventing organizations, or Ken Wilber's integral theory, or Claire Graves' spiral dynamics model, the security value maps with the amber in integral or Leloux's work and blue in spiral dynamics, the opportunity value that aligns with the orange value, the inclusion value aligns with the green value in both of those systems, and the integration value aligns with teal in integral and Leloux's work and yellow in spiral dynamics. And again, if you are unfamiliar with either of those systems or stages of development, no worries. We're kind of doing our job to articulate what each of those look like in education. But again, the four values, essentially security, opportunity, inclusion, and integration. And we're trying not to straw man these values and the schools they represent too much, but we have decided maybe we will start to drop in the idea that security school, just for you to picture it, maybe something in line with a traditional school. Now, what that means is can mean many, many things, but security values and traditional schools maybe go hand in hand as opportunity schools and what we might call the mainstream in Britain. North America. And then finally, the inclusion school, which is what we may deem a progressive school or an inquiry school. That fourth value of integration is the one that tries to balance the three other values, depending on the context that it exists within. And what we're actually saying is that above and beyond the aims and values of school, there are four different perspectives we can take on a school while we are observing it 
What are those four perspectives, Robert? So those four perspectives, those are in alignment with Ken Wilber's quadrant models from Aqual, uh, the all quadrants, all levels, lines, states, stages, and types. And again, if you're unfamiliar with that, fear not. We're not going to go down that lingo. We've created our own lingo and jargon to follow along with. Basically, you can look at the interiors of individuals, interiors of collectives, the exteriors of individuals, or the exteriors of collectives. So there's four perspectives, but we're, we're kind of putting two words in each of those boxes. And Brennan and I are using the term aspects. So we're talking about the eight aspects of school or eight aspects of education. And when you talk about education, it's important to ensure that you're looking at all eight aspects of the thing to get a holistic and complete view. So in the interior of the individuals, we have the beliefs and the reactions of the individual people in relationship to school and education. In the interiors of the group or of the collective, we have the culture and the communities, so the shared values between people and the various overlapping groups that are in education. We also, in the exterior of the individual, can look at objective things such as resources, whether those are actual objects or whether those might be people, like human resources. We can also look at practices in terms of what are the things we are doing and how are we going about doing things. And finally, in the exterior of the collective, we can look at the systems and the environment. So the environment being the actual physical spaces that the schooling or education is taking place in or not, and the systems being how all of those other things are basically being organized in a larger picture. Yeah. So this is a, I mean, it's a theory of ours. We've cobbled it together from various sources and it's open for critique. We, we're happy to have discussions about whether this holds up, whether this theory of the aims, values, and perspectives or elements or aspects of school are uh, holds up to scrutiny. So what we have done over the last few episodes is we've imagined a security, a traditional style school. We took a virtual visit there. You can go back to the last, the previous three episodes to take a listen to what we said and saw there. And then what we did what we began to do is to reflect upon that and to look at what we call the babies in the bathwater or the pros and cons of this traditional style of education inside a 2019 context. So if you want to go back to last week's episode, you can see how we talked about the beliefs of how the self and the group interact within education, something about the employment market, historical context, and the societal model that this traditional type of education works in. So moving forward, where are we up to, Rob? So we're going to revisit our school visit, and we're going to go back to talking about the head teacher, and hopefully as well talk about the staff. So although we're using the word security, and Brennan has already alluded to this, when we're walking through this thought experiment, you can pretty much just bring into your mind like a traditional school setup from, you know, 100 years ago, 200 years ago, arguably probably even up to, you know, like 50, 60 years ago, there's probably a lot of similarities to what we're describing. This way of teaching is still extremely common worldwide in 2019. Um, so let's take a quick peek in at the head teacher. Somebody who's going to uphold the role of head teacher is somebody who's going to take that part in the hierarchy. So the, the head teacher in this kind of school, their actual job is to fulfill the role of being the highest point in the authority. 
Now, of course, we want someone who's competent at doing that, but their trustworthiness to uphold that duty is paramount, quite possibly even more so than qualifications or experience. The thing that a security value school wants is a head teacher who is trustworthy and who is dependable. They might be well-qualified, they might have experience, they might be capable, they might have a long history of service, but ultimately the thing everyone's looking for is, is this person trustworthy enough to uphold the duty of being at the top of the pyramid in this school? And so in the best case scenario, yes, they are trustworthy, they have the experience and the qualifications to lead such an organization within this a uh, very traditional context. However, maybe they have a qualification and maybe they have some experience in this role, but maybe they're not right for this context. It has to be the right person to lead the establishment. It's not anybody with a doctorate or a master's degree. It's not anybody that has led a school for three to five years. They have to be somebody in whom this authority can be placed and they will lead the school in alignment with these traditional values. And if that's the case, as long as the school wants that, great. Now you put someone in charge of a school with these traditional values, in 2019, a more mainstream school or a progressive school, it's not gonna fit. There's gonna be a jar within the culture, within their systems and within what they want to do inside the school. And this is kind of where just having a trustworthy and qualified head teacher falls apart if they're not also in alignment with the values. One of the babies about this that I actually like is, you know, my back goes up like, you know, I've, I've seen examples of this where people have moved into these kinds of roles who maybe haven't had a lot of teaching experience, maybe don't even have teacher's degrees, um, becoming heads of schools. And there's sometimes like a little bit of grumbling between staff about things like that. But ultimately, like the proof's in the pudding. Like, just because you have qualifications doesn't mean you'll actually pull off the job. And not having qualifications doesn't mean you can't do the job. The actual test is, when we put you in this role, how do you do? And I actually kind of like that because it actually opens up a larger filter, possibly, of who might get that role. And somebody who may be lacking a desired certain qualification or piece of paper who would have been filtered out, that, that's a detriment to the system. That's a detriment to the school. And if somebody can be given that role and uphold the duties of it and pull it off better than somebody who does have the qualifications we said we wanted, I'm all for the person who's doing a better job to have the job. What you're kind of alluding to there is in a traditional system, the people making that decision, which could be the board of governors for the school or, or the trustees, yeah, in a traditional school, they may not have this set of explicit criteria that you would get in a current mainstream school. And it may be that they say, well, you know, this person, I really think they could do the job very well. And they may not be the most experienced or the most qualified. They may just be the person that resonates most with the kind of feelings of the board on in these values or in this role. Alternatively, that that uh, over-adherence to lineage and tradition might mean that the person that's been at the school longest gets the promotion, even though they are, when, uh, when logic is applied to this situation, you're thinking, yeah, that person probably isn't the best person to be leading this organization. So there's uh, both sides of the coin there in this kind of, uh, in this traditional system that doesn't necessarily use objective scientific criteria to make these decisions. Yeah. So 
in a nutshell, babies and bathwater. Babies, I guess we just want the people who can actually uphold the duties of the position to be the ones who actually get it. And I guess bathwater is when there's things like nepotism or internal politics or just simply, like you were saying, legacy coming into into the decision of who gets to be head teacher. There's danger, I guess, perhaps in not not grabbing from a different gene pool, possibly. By simply keeping it within a school, within a within a closed system, perhaps you are less adaptive over time. Yeah, and so when we imagined or when we we spoke to the head teacher and we heard them give a speech about lineage and traditional common sense and providing a place for their students to become upstanding citizens loyal to the heritage of the school, what are the benefits of this kind of approach? And in 2019, what could also be the drawbacks? Basically, as the head teacher is talking essentially about how they build citizens. So what's positive about this is the confidence that what the school is doing is right and is beneficial for you, and that they're not simply going to be flip-flopping and changing things up year to year and trying new projects and some things failing and falling apart. Ultimately, we want security here, and we want students to have a secure, continuous trajectory through the school heading towards the workforce and the citizenry. And there isn't the need to really question what's going on because there is some belief and I guess just some good faith that the school is taking their authority with the responsibility that comes with it to prove that they know what is best and to do what is best for learning. And there is something to be said for that. You know, there's a lot of cynicism within a lot of staff nowadays where, you know, Almost every year or every other year, there's some hot new thing and the school's going to try this. And there's usually some cycle of, we put a lot of work into this new thing. And then a year or two years later, it, it hasn't taken, or we've just moved on to the next hot trend. And all of a sudden we're doing this and it creates a really potentially disjointed set of experiments for a student to pass through to get ready for society. Now, the obvious bathwater here, given our context in 2019, is what set of traditional information is going to have you prepared for the world around you in 2019? School curriculum and approaches to schools largely didn't change from about 1770 from the earliest Prussian models till arguably still today in a lot of schools and in a lot of curriculums. And yeah, of course, there's a need for the basics, but our world's a much more complex place today. So the bathwater here is the belief that what used to work will still work now. I guess that's the bathwater here. Yeah, so there's there's a few things there. One, the idea of consistency in what you do, regardless of 2019 or 1819. Having a student who passes through a school for seven or eight years with that consistency is going to build confidence in what you do and build those consistent skills. However, as you say, if the skills are irrelevant, and there's a great story called the Sabretooth Curriculum that talks about, uh, I think we shared it early on in the podcast, about basically a set of 
Neanderthals who had a curriculum in their school based around what they'd done a hundred years earlier, which was based around saber-toothed tiger hunting. And the saber-tooths had essentially died out and they were still basing their entire school around uh, hunting saber-toothed tigers, even though now everybody was fishing and hunting for wild boar or whatever. And so that idea of losing touch with what's actually relevant in the real world is, is very key. One other thing I would touch on is this idea of grounding ourselves in our culture and our heritage. There's a lot of talk in 2019 about us losing touch with our lineage and our history. And one thing this traditional educational system would do is to reinforce your sense of lineage and this idea of grounding yourself in who you are and who your culture is seems to be a big facet of mental health, or at least that is a big part of our current narrative. Yeah, and this is one of the things, one of the babies we want to bring along. And arguably, most schools, most schools haven't abandoned this. Most schools still in 2019 have a school name or a school mascot or a school animal or something like that. And to varying degrees, there is a sense of belonging. What I would say we don't have as much of in 2019 is the feeling of we and culture expanding beyond what I just described, beyond the school walls. There's less of a sense of being, you know, I'll use my own example from Canada, but there's less of an example of being from Ontario, of being an Ontarian or being a Canadian. But you might have some of that we shared belonging sense of, oh, I am part of this classroom and I am part of this school. And that is one of the really beautiful things, even in these schools in 2019 that are security minded or this uh, using this traditional approach. Sure, we can criticize some of the teaching approaches and the way they go about other things. But one thing they do really have right is just the sense of if you're here, you're part of the we and there's much less inner politics going on within staffs and schools. There's also just seems to be a lot less conflict and there's a lot less of the social hierarchies kicking in of outcasts and in-groups. There is more of a sense of we are in this together, which is a really positive thing. And for better or worse, there's also that historical element. If you're in a school that is 500, 800 years old, and they exist now, <laughs> these modern 800-year-old schools. Now... <laughs> That sense of tradition and lineage goes beyond we are part of a, a we that exists now, but we are part of something that has gone on for hundreds of years. Now, that obviously can be stifling to the individual, but it also can ground you deeply in a culture. And we touched on this a little bit last week that the flip side of being grounded deeply in a culture is also that temptation or also that shadow of exclusion of anyone who is other. Yeah, shall we move on to the idea of the staff in the school? And I, be I believe we began by hanging around in the staff room before school to get a, a look at how these characters hung out and we, uh, we saw a, a family sense of belonging and people enjoying cups of tea together and the head teacher was in there and there's a friendly respect and banter going back and forth. Yeah, just as the students have a fairly strong sense of togetherness, of we-ness in these sort of security-minded schools, even in 2019 and in 
and in the last few years, some of the schools Brenna and I have been in, schools that have this tendency to lean towards the security or more traditional side, the staffs do kind of feel like a family or a group of friends. There's not the political games going on the same way you might see in like an opportunity school or more mainstream school where people are kind of vying for spots or roles or positions or little cliques start forming. Now, that's not to say some people aren't better friends than others in a security school, of course, but there is this real sense of we are a staff together. We are the teachers of this school. And yeah, when it's break time, you're there not discussing what's gone on in class. You're there catching up with each other. How are you doing? How was your weekend? All these sorts of things. And that's actually a really nice positive thing that if you can decide what kind of staff interactions you want to have, friendly and caring sounds pretty good to me. We have painted the most positive version of this, and it's not hard to see the less healthy version of this traditional uh, staff room where people are not getting along. And uh, there's a frosty atmosphere and there's maybe backbiting and how this sense of unity and shared meaning can, can really engender the staff to care for each other almost as a family. Now, that's what we'd say the baby of this of this staff situation. The bathwater may be that in that situation, it may become very hard to actually broach topics that are that are a little bit um, controversial or a little bit uh, disharmonious to the group. And it may be that this is almost a soft way to mitigate dissent, to stop those voices of change from being able to take hold. And yeah, there's a feeling that you don't want to ruffle feathers. You don't want to put ripples into the group. You don't want to be the, the one person out disagreeing with everybody. That that need to maintain some group harmony, first of all, serves that positive function, but also has this potential drawback where voicing critical opinions and voicing important and vital information isn't so easy. Can you use the example of the, the pilot that you shared with me? Because I think this is an example of this gone way too far, but sometimes going too far makes the more subtle things more obvious. So this is from a, a Malcolm Gladwell book and he talks about the number of crashes in Korean airlines in I think the 1980s. Essentially they got hold of some black box recordings before the crashes and in several cases it was the co-pilot or the subordinate who was reluctant to point out to the pilot in authority that they were about to crash and so they would go about it in the most roundabout way such as saying things like you know sometimes it's really good just to, to check the gauges on the plane uh, and this was like seconds before it crashed and so what they actually did they they had some American consultants who came in to train the pilots and co-pilots to be able to speak up when the plane was in imminent danger and they fairly quickly from by all accounts saw the number of crashes drop and so this is touching back on this idea that in these traditional situations where you do have something that maybe is a little distasteful and hard to say this this kind of shared harmony can get in the way of that. But in many cases, it's very good. Obviously, if you're heading for the side of a mountain, not so good. So let's get into the hierarchy a little bit. In our imaginary school visit, we basically laid out that within a school, there's within the staff essentially two layers of hierarchy, possibly three. And essentially, there's a head of school. The possible optional next layer would be sort of a deputy head or vice principal layer. And then there's the layer of the teachers. And there's no mistaking which 
layer you are in. If you are in one of these layers, you are in that layer. There's no blurred lines or gray areas. It's very black and white in terms of what your roles are and what your responsibilities are in your layer of the hierarchy. So this is actually something I would say we want as a baby. We want the clarity of what your role is, and we want the responsibilities laid out clearly of your role. There, ideally, in any organization, in any system, in any school, it would be clear who does what and who is responsible for what, and there's nothing that's missing or left out. So that is definitely one of the babies here. Now, arguably, as we move up into the opportunity school and as we move up into the inclusion school, we're going to see less of a reliance on the levels of hierarchy in such a black and white way. And we're going to see more of a sharing of responsibilities, more of a sharing of, of things and new roles that show up. So in this kind of traditional security school, you probably don't have heads of a subject. You know, there's not a head of the English department or something like that. What you're going to see is the head of the school, possibly a vice principal, deputy head, and then the teachers. And the work that falls on your shoulders is clearly defined. So we want that clarity of roles and responsibilities, but one of the huge drawbacks here is that when the pyramid of authority is so rigid, and when it's so structured, the contributions of the team, the contributions of the group, the wisdom of the group often can't come forward. And basically, the entire thing is gonna like sink or sail depending on who that head is and their capacities and their abilities. And the capacities and the abilities of their subordinates or the people underneath them, they're not going to be able there to help guide the ship or, in O'Leary's example there, guide the plane into safety, into some other some other possibly better thing. Yeah, and I, I think in, in a larger school, there may be one or two... Um more elements in this hierarchy. There could be in a large school with 1,500 students, the heads of a few departments. However, the the idea of having very clear roles and responsibilities that are traditionally grounded is important. Now, in the best version of the opportunity school, the more mainstream school, we would have job descriptions that really set out what these roles and responsibilities are. So we still keep hold of that generally in today's world. And I, I think in the historical context where maybe the school was not quite as complex, it was okay for head teachers and deputy heads to just have this traditional kind of role where it was always clear what they were doing. As schools have become more complex and responsibilities kind of need to be shared because there's so many more things to do. This more modern idea of actually having a job description written down becomes more important. However, the underlying idea of having clear roles and responsibilities is core to really any organization working. Because if nobody knows what to do and nobody will take responsibility, you know, the blame game begins very quickly. And so fingers will get pointed. So yeah, this this idea, I mean, the authority of the hierarchy came about essentially because in medieval society and pre-medieval society, this kind of needed to be codified beyond what, what might exist in a tribal kind of situation. So yeah, keeping hold of a lot of that is, is really good. However, we do want to make it flexible and be explicit in what people can do and give them opportunities to share their own strengths. And this is where the idea of the meritocracy comes in and kind of supersedes this hierarchy in theory. Yeah, what's that all about? <laughs> That's my catchphrase. 
Now, on to staff professional development and evaluation. Sounds like something that wouldn't have happened 200 years ago so much. Especially if we're talking like the one-room schoolhouse. Probably the only other adult who ever enters your room is like when some local superintendent strolls by for their their one-year annual visit. I guess that's what most annual visits are, once a year. But as far as professional development and staff development, this probably doesn't look like the way we think about professional development in the sort of modern, more mainstream world. A lot of this will be done in-house. So professional development is a chance to see maybe other classrooms or a topic that's of interest to staff or that's just straight up and told to you by the head of school that you need to go see this person's room. And any observation that is happening from the head who's maybe coming into your room, that's pretty much just a matter of procedure and them holding up their duty. So for example, they are expected to do one annual visit as the headmaster. That's why they're in your room. Now, the extreme would be they might also come to your room if there was some kind of problem or growing complaints within the community. Again, with security being this dominant value, there's a bit of good faith that you are just upholding your duty. It's common sense what you need to do, but if for some reason you aren't upholding your duty, you may have a visit. So there's three things here. Professional development is largely done in-house. Observations are basically done as a procedure, and you've probably only got the head of school coming into your class for either that one-year annual visit or if there is some kind of problem. So some of the babies here. One of the benefits is just learning from within your community. There is an incredible amount of money in schools spent on professional development and largely on the travel to go somewhere, the accommodation to stay somewhere, conference fees, all these kinds of things to get staff going out to other places. Now, obviously, there's huge benefit to that, especially if you're looking at some kind of new concept that isn't currently happening in your school. Of course, you need to go somewhere else to learn from the experts. But one of the babies here is that, you know, there's a lot of wisdom around you in any given school. And sometimes just getting around to other rooms will present just as many new ideas to you or open your mind just as much as if you had traveled 2,000 kilometers and attended some sort of four-day thing. So there is a real benefit to that. And I would also say another baby here is, yeah, there's not a need to have authority breathing down your neck and doing quote-unquote pointless observations unless they are being responsive to the needs of the school, the system, or the staff. If there isn't a problem, you know, why keep checking? The fire alarm only needs to beep beep if there is smoke. Your fire alarm doesn't beep every hour letting you know there's no smoke. If you don't smell smoke, then there's no fire. So I think this hits on something that we've spoken about quite a lot outside of the podcast, is the idea of this this traditional or security mindset is a what I see is what there is kind of mindset off. It takes things at face value for better or worse. And so what could happen is that the head teacher will go in once a year and see a class. And it may be that the, the, the teacher has an awesome day and uh, they know the head teachers come in, they're super prepped, whatever, and everything goes fine. Maybe they have a bad day. It happens to everybody. And yeah, things aren't fine anymore. And similarly, inside communities where people may begin to talk or whisper about people that they're not so keen on. And in a traditional society where what you see is what there is, this idea of there's no smoke without fire may be that, oh, 
hold on, I hear this, I see this, I see this. This must mean that this is happening. Now, it, it, obviously common sense dictates that in many cases, maybe it is. If you if you see bad teaching, bad teaching, unreliable behavior, you may begin to say, okay, yeah. But also it's important that what would happen more in 2019 is that you would look for the evidence and then you would begin to look at the underlying causes and you would look to put in some support and say, is this actually what's happening or is this just a bad day? And if so, uh, fine, let's do some more observations or let's talk more or let's make some goals and some some strategies. Or, yeah, this is an actual challenge. This is an actual problem. Let's put some support in place for you. I think that's something that may not have happened so much in the traditional society or the traditional school, um, which also means if you're a big... <laughs> Sure, you can, you can, uh, you can get away with this for years. Yeah. Like I. So the bathwater here is incest is not best. We do want some ideas from outside of our school, outside of our system, for the benefit to improve what's already going on in the school. So of course we're saying part of the baby here is to take advantage of the rich resources in terms of the people who are already in your school community. But ultimately in 2019, keeping things only within your school has the danger of just simply reinforcing what is already there, which over time makes you just less adaptive as a school and perhaps hides problems more easily. Yeah, I think it's diminishing returns. And I also think that the kind of peer observation that we're potentially talking about here is much more likely in a more mainstream school. It's just starting to take hold now in mainstream schools and into progressive schools that you would actually have a, a systemic approach to peer observation where you would go in and you would try and glean information from your peer and learn from them and then feedback on strategies that you're they're using inside the classroom. And likewise, an actual evaluation process that takes into account your own personal goals and the goals of the organization. Nothing like that would have existed in this traditional kind of school. But the beginnings of that idea of the head teacher going in and observing and just checking that everything's going uh, swimmingly. I think potentially there is an, there, there's a lot of gold there for in-school professional development. I just think that probably in a traditional school, it really didn't happen very much. Every teacher would probably be in their own island and maybe the head teacher would pop in from time to time just to check that everything was going. And if there's no smoke, then there's no fire. One of the other things we're touching on here, you've just mentioned it, are the specific objectives of an observation. So one of the things that's missing here in this security-styled evaluation is when that head teacher comes in, you don't actually know what they're looking for. Now, of course, there's common sense of what they might be looking for and what they don't want to see. But I've personally experienced this with two heads of school who had to argue were coming from more of that security mindset. They didn't give me any kind of heads up about what they were looking for. And when we sat down for a talk afterwards, they literally just brought a formalized looking sheet of paper. But it was just a blank piece of paper. And they were just writing down what they saw in the room. There were no specific school goals or criteria that they were working on. Now, in more opportunity-based observations I've had, I was given those criteria before the observation. So I knew what they were looking for. And when we sat down, we talked about specific goals. And in fact, in both opportunity and arguably even inclusion uh, reviews that I've had, they even asked me for feedback and input on what they should be looking for. So a very kind of reversed hierarchy thing here of they're coming into the room 
And I'm actually pointing it to them like, oh, here's something I'm working on. Can you, can I get your opinion on, on how I'm doing in this area? Now, the concerning part, the bathwater here of this kind of security version where someone's just rolling into your room with a blank sheet of paper and just writing stuff down is you could potentially be penalized for something and not have a leg to stand on in terms of making an argument for like, well, I didn't realize that was going to be a thing. And I'll go back to an example of a, a former teacher of mine who was teaching back in the 60s and 70s. And uh, he remembers one of his first observations, and it was the superintendent. So that's even an extra layer of hierarchy. It wasn't even his head of school. It was a superintendent coming in for the board to observe the new teachers. And he had no idea what this guy was looking for. But this former teacher of mine felt like he nailed the lesson. Students were right on page with him. Students did great work. All these sorts of things. I know he was a bit of a like long-haired hippie type guy. And this would be like a classic sitcom thing of you got the hippie teacher who isn't actually just a hippie, but who's actually fulfilling his duty really well and doing a great job and meeting the system's expectations of him. Not that there's anything wrong with hippies. Come on, Rob. Not not that there's any... I, I take a bit of a thing with hippies who don't fulfill what they say they're going to do. But yeah, nothing wrong with hippie. Little caveat there. You've got this like straight-laced superintendent, super strict guy, hasn't busted a smile, straight tie, ironed suit, all that kind of business, walking around the room. And uh, when they had their meeting afterwards, basically this superintendent just ripped the hell out of him because his curtains were too long. And in one of the back shelves, the books weren't stored in a very tidy manner. Now, this was a, a bookshelf that he had to open the, the door of to see into behind the teacher's desk. But because he wasn't keeping a few of his own materials in ship shape, that was enough of a criteria for this guy to actually write up like a pretty scathing report, mentioning nothing of this guy's teaching, mentioning nothing of how he handled students, nothing about his lesson. But the two things that were on his review were the curtains in the room he was teaching and not even his own own classroom, but just that the curtains in the room were an incorrect length and that when this guy opened a cupboard, some of the books weren't very tidy. Well, what, what that kind of shows is that lack of transparency in what happens next. The superintendent takes that report. It could be he just puts it in a folder <laughs> and it stays in that file and, and nobody ever looks at it. And he, and this guy gets, uh, gets away with having these messy books. And maybe the person in the room next door was the worst teacher you've ever seen. And they also get away with this piece of paper just being put in their folder. But because there's no criteria, because there's no transparency, it could equally be that this dude gets fired the next day. Uh, like, no explanation. No comeback. I mean... He had a bad review. He had a bad that review would be from authority. And obviously, the 20th century, unionization, things like that, began to try and put a, a little bit of an end to those days. So if you're in 2019 and someone is coming in to evaluate or observe you, it's a very good idea to get that criteria. Um, there's a... We'll touch on this way more, the positives and negatives, when we get into the opportunity, more mainstream kind of school. But um, yeah, that um, the, the benefit of having your head trust you so much that they basically pop their head in once a year and say, keep going, you know, that's got to be good, that kind of trust. And, it, and if there's no smoke, yeah. there's no fire, right? That's the baby here. The level of trust that authority has in you to do your job means that they do not need to micromanage. They do not need to interfere. You know your role and you are doing it. And I might even just separate that baby, oh, that 
It's not a good sentence. I'm going to separate this baby a little bit further to say the trust is the great thing. The the need to not come into the room could be a baby, but doesn't have to be. Well, I think what we're saying is we want that trust. And sure, the, the head could be coming into the room, but the reason they're coming into the room isn't to try and catch you to see if you haven't been upholding your duty. It's not been just blind routine that they have to come see you. If they're in your room, they're in there for another reason because you already have their trust. They might be in there to support you or to support some of the students or, you know, to see that the school is moving in certain ways, but they're not necessarily there to kind of do a, a, a job review of like, are you still upholding enough of your duty to stay here or not? Yeah, there's no checks and balances. This is a, this later enlightenment kind of values. No, we're living in a sweet age where you do your job, you get to stay there for the rest of your life. And uh, I think that's a good place to, to wrap, wrap it up. It So we still have a lot more to discuss about this security, more kind of traditional-minded school. We're still going to get to talking about what an average school day looks like. So we're going to talk about the kinds of activities, the lessons we see, school uniforms, school assemblies, talk a little bit more about the teaching philosophy, go more into depth in classroom culture, and even talk about the environment within the room. So we still have a lot to discuss here, O'Leary. Yeah, and I think what we want to keep stressing is that even though we use the word traditional, that might mean to a lot of people that this is an outdated system. There is a lot of good and healthy practice practices and concepts and ideas inside this model of teaching, this model of education. And we're getting down into that mine and we're digging for all those gold, those gold babies and throwing away all that bath water so that when we walk into a conversation with somebody who maybe is talking from more mainstream opportunity mindset or the inclusion progressive mindset, we can say, yeah, that's fine. But let's just turn that dial up a little bit more on that or more traditional method because that trust or that self-discipline or that sense of duty, there's something to be gained in this context in 2019 from paying attention to that. That doesn't mean we turn it all the way up and we no longer look at those other values it means we balance it sensitively for context and that's why we're doing this yeah and, and then one more little giving the devil of its due here like when we're talking about the security value we're really talking about the first iteration of nationwide schooling and of course they weren't going to get everything quote-unquote right the first time through this is like a rough draft at how to do schooling now that rough draft in many ways is still kicking around in 2019 you know a few revisions of this approach to teaching have come since, but it didn't get the benefit of these future values already being around. They weren't there. Like to look back at this thing, it's a little bit easy to kind of snub my nose at it and 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 layer a lot of criticisms at it. But you know, this is the that kind of first picture in the stages of evolution. And we've built onto this since. But as you say, they got some things right then. And some of those things that they got right are still right in our modern 2019 context. And yes, we want to move on from what is no longer serving us, but we don't want to forget those gold babies down in the mine, as you say. So that's, I think, why we're filtering through these with a fine-tooth comb. And we've talked in the abstract a lot here, but both of us have actually experienced these traditional-ish schools and the frustration that can come from being a more inclusion, progressive, or even opportunity mainstream kind of mindset teacher within those. So we don't want to, we're speaking from experience on a lot of these things, but we're also trying to be objective, as in, this is how it could work, and this is 
also how this could be a frustration. This could be out of alignment with what we want for our children in 2019. Another deep, 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 rich conversation there, Rob McLeod. And uh, I thank you for indulging myself and yourself in this discussion. It's uh, it's a very self-indulgent discussion. But as Gorky's zygotic monkey once said, it's better to be self-indulgent than Eric Clapton indulgent. I'm not quite sure what it means, but it rings true for me. I appreciate our mu- the mutually indulgent nature of our chat. I really hope that people who are listening thus far, and thank you if you are, and if you've listened right to the end of this landmark 31st episode, um, I really hope you're getting something out of this. Uh, Hit us up on the uh, Twitter network and uh, let's continue the conversation. Yes, please. Thanks, Brendan. Thanks, Rob. We hope this episode has been interesting. If you want to connect, we're on Twitter. We're kind of building a community there. So far, it's kind of been sharing news stories that reinforce our narrative about the four values competing against one another in education. But let's see if we want to organize to do more than that there. Feel free to pass this episode on to others who give a damn about what's going on in education. From Brendan and myself, attention is a valuable thing these days. Thanks for having some of yours on what we're saying. The end. The end of the recording. As we know it, and Rob feels fine. I can chop that up. That's good. Don't worry. It's all good. And the historical context in which this traditionally took place. This isn't a good analogy. The only thing I could think of off the top of my head was like, well, if there is no fire, why do you need the smoke alarm on? But that's not what I'm saying. I'm saying the exact opposite, which is... So I would say we... um, I'm not going to say anything else. If you're not going to say anything else, sometimes you don't even have to say it out loud. You can just... Just had some trick or... My daughters went trick or treating today, which is weird because they don't do that in Japan. And also she's four days late. But, um, and they only went to three houses, ours and, and two other friends. So this is pointless too, isn't it?